Welcome to the Future Is podcast, where we explore the future of your life and business. I'm your host, Joe Tobis, and I am a future shaper and happen to oversee global marketing here at Honeywell. This episode, we're going to talk about sustaining human life on Mars. Now, Mars has an average temperature of negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit, and its atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide with some water vapor, according to NASA. Those conditions are clearly uninhabitable for humans who want to explore the planet. Today, I'm joined by Honeywell's Senior Research and Development Scientist, Amanda Childers. She is part of an incredible project that develops technology to recover oxygen from the waste carbon dioxide inside the spacecrafts that the astronauts breathe out. That technology will make it possible for people to live and breathe outside of the Earth's atmosphere. So with that, Amanda, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation because I am a geek about space and astronauts ever since I was a kid. And so talking to somebody who works in this environment every day is exciting. So why don't we start there? What do you do? I am a, uh, as you said, a research and development scientist in the engines group, actually. So that actually does deal a lot with environmental control on an airplane because all of the air you breathe on an airplane comes through the engine. So that's why we're part of that group. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a natural starting point to say, hey, we help you breathe on commercial flights. We help fighter jet pilots breathe and flight control for, for those type of systems. Let's take that and leverage that and apply it to space. How did you get into this line of work? Big picture, uh, getting into science and everything. I, I mm -hmm. always liked um, uh, science and math growing up. I did place, I believe, in some eighth grade math competitions, so I still brag about that sometimes. Very nice. It was never really a question of what I wanted to do when I was older, um, math or science or engineering. And um, I did my undergrad at University of Michigan in material science and then graduate work um, at Northwestern, also in material science. Honeywell was just a really great fit, and I've loved being able to work in a lot of different areas. Even within aerospace, I've gotten to work on things like um, carbon brakes for, for aircraft, fuel cool. tank inerting systems, uh, silicone valves for oxygen uh, systems for, for fighter jets. And it was actually my background or our background as a group in making carbon-carbon uh, aircraft brakes that put us in a really good position to leverage that knowledge into using essentially the same or similar technology and applying it to space. Wow. I assume it's not just Mars where we're looking at uh, utilizing this application. It's it's anywhere in space? It's it's anywhere in space. It, and really, it's a lot of the um, deep space travel. As you start wanting to go farther for longer periods, you're going to have less opportunity to bring supplies with you and to top off those supplies periodically. So we have to be able to reuse the supplies we have. We don't have the opportunity to just say, oh, by CO2, um, we've got right. more oxygen. We, we have to get it back. <laughs> right. So, you know, obviously the um, the need for us to tackle this had to be many decades ago when the Apollo missions landed on the moon. Is the technology we're looking at today a continuation of that activity? It's, it's really not. And it really comes back again to this flight length, this duration. Those Apollo missions were a week, um, eight, nine days. And a Mars mission is going to be 
uh, 42 months. So those, yeah, so those, those initial missions, it was very easy for your philosophy just to be, just pack all the supplies you need. And that's just, it's it's not going to work anymore, not only because that would get technically unfeasible to launch, but as with everything um, that comes back to money, uh, every kilogram of launch weight equals a dollar amount. That's huge. I think the the rough numbers for lower Earth orbit is something like $40,000 a kilogram of launch cost. And something that would be going to Mars, for example, uh, the estimate is up around 300000 So you just can't pack enough supplies. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's an interesting um, dilemma to have, but it makes complete sense. So taking about 42 months, so three plus years just to get to Mars. No, so um, it's, it's, the, it's the one year to Mars, one year on Mars, and then one year back, essentially. Got it. Got so it. Okay. Like so yep. one year to Mars, no layovers, I'm assuming, just a direct flight. You know, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, NASA currently has plans for a lunar orbit platform, a, a gateway station. That yeah. might that might be the jumping off point. It, not, nothing is um, totally decided, but that's what they're they are envisioning is that that could um, serve as an outpost, right. <laughs> essentially for something right. like that. So um, it is an option to. They haven't quite decided what way they're going to get there. And so, how does NASA uh, tap uh, Honeywell to help them with this type of an, an issue? Is it because you mentioned our expertise in commercial aerospace lends itself to to do this? And is this a type of partnership that is uh, immediate, decades old? It's it's a little bit of everything. We definitely have a good standing with NASA. There's been a Honeywell product on every NASA manned mission ever, um, and we've also supported a lot of the work on the International Space Station over the last 15 years with, uh, I think, something like 40 products and obviously all the components that, that go with those. So there is a, an already a relationship established, but they did put out a request for a proposal for this type of project to help them increase their efficiency in recovering oxygen. We submitted a proposal with Ardea and were awarded it in 2017. Awesome. As my amazing team, Cassie, my producer, uh, was doing research, she told me, you have not seen the movie The Martian. I know. Isn't that, it it feels like it's almost homework now. Amanda, if I could, can I I assign you to go watch that movie tonight? I I will, because I think it comes down to, you mentioned you've, you've always been passionate about space ever since you were little, and I've always been very into science and math. Um, obviously, I got degrees in it and went into work in it. But to tell you the truth, I'm pretty happy with my two feet on the ground. Um, <laughs> so you know, sometimes very, yeah. I can imagine that, right? You're a little too close to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's not a nerves thing. It's not. I love the technology. They're great technology. But I'm just one of those people. I am perfectly happy staying on the ground and helping other people become astronauts. So maybe it's one of those things in my spare time. I didn't feel like watching a space disaster movie. Yeah, I, I get it. So for our viewers um, or our podcast listeners, I'm not sure what I call them. Cassie, we'll have to do the research on this. I'm guessing <laughs> listeners who have seen The Martian. I'm sure that there is some questions about what technology would have been useful for the situation that happened. So we'll have to do a follow-up, Amanda, after you see the movie, where we debunk or we tell the truths about what we see in the movie. 
Cassie did give me a heads up and I asked some colleagues who had seen it. They said that there were some uh, very realistic looking things like the airlocks you'd have to walk in and out of and everything like that. So I, after I watch it, we can do a follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I was talking to my son. I have a teenage son um, who is interested in uh, in space. And because Honeywell has a, a project, kind of a, a space camp type thing, when I was mentioning it, I was telling him about the fact that they talked a lot about NASA looking at Mars as the next destination. And that a few years ago, it would have been like a junior high kid who's learning about science would actually be the astronaut who's going to one day be the first one to land on Mars, which I thought was such a cool idea. But why Mars and not Venus or Pluto or somewhere else? The first answer would just be proximity. Pluto, I don't have the numbers, but it would take a long time to get there. I think think we just had our first satellite pass there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the, the, the other aspect is Mars is looking like it's, while it might appear very different than Earth, it, it does have a lot of the things Earth has, and it might have at one point been much more similar to Earth. So there's, um, including the atmosphere and some of the um, elements it's made up of, its uh, geological features are fairly familiar and everything like that. So it really is the next place people want to go. To not only learn, can humans um, live outside of Earth? We can also learn from Mars if there is anything to learn from how to keep our own um, planet functioning well and healthy. Right. Yeah. So, okay, Let, let's let's turn to some of the technology, maybe even the problems you're trying to solve. Or I understand the concept of living in um, an unhospitable atmosphere in space and in Mars, but what are the ways that we help solve? So the The system that all of our technologies will feed into is called the Environmental Control and Life Support System, and that's called ECLIS for short, um, if you want to sound in the know. Um, Okay. And yeah, and the ECLIS. ECLIS. All right. ECLIS, ECLIS. yes, yes. Um, So the ECLIS system is what handles basically processing all the waste from the astronauts and then giving them back what they need to live. So it handles the CO2, the urine, um, everything like that, and gives them back water, fresh oxygen, um, and kind of keeps that that loop going. And so as you can imagine, there are many steps along that process of different units that do different things, like my colleague who works on the project that helps remove the CO2 from the air. Um, and then I'm on the, the step in that process that helps recover the oxygen from that CO2. And in an ideal situation, that whole process, I'm learning podcasts too. Here I am using my arms to make uh, hand gestures. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to gesture this whole loop that we're looking at. We really want it to be something called closed loop. What goes yep. in, what comes out. Um, yep. We don't want, we don't want to have to top off very much yep. anywhere. Cause like I said, that, that's going to equal uh, size, weight, launch cost, everything like that. Um, so some of the specific areas that uh, Honeywell has projects in is either making units um, smaller, lighter, more reliable. That's a real big one because it's not just the weight of the unit. It's the weight of all the extra parts you might need <laughs> to repair right. a unit. Right. So reliability is a huge part. Um, and then the project that I am working on is helping plug some of these holes where it is, um, by definition, not closed loop. So we're, we're helping link up two ends of that circle. So it's like the ultimate recycle uh, yes, and reuse yep. uh, tool, right? You're, yep. Everything you're everything you're literally breathing or pushing out, you're getting back in something that's reusable. 
Exactly. And if you think about it, the, the energy you take in is food. Mm-hmm. If you're complete, if you're completely closed loop, your only waste product should be carbon. And if you've got a waste stream that is not carbon, that has other um, elements as uh, a part of it, even though it might not seem that important by definition, you're never going to be able to close that loop. And um, so that kind of leads into where my project is, which works with a waste stream of methane, which is a carbon and yeah. four hydrogens. So if you just dump that methane, it might not seem like, what do we need hydrogen for? But if you're dumping that hydrogen, you are by definition limiting the total efficiency of what you're able to recover. Amazing. So as they're thinking about this mission, is there a timetable for it? You know, NASA loves roadmaps. So they definitely have mm-hmm. um, have roadmaps. And the, the current version of the roadmap, uh, this first step is this uh, gateway station. Um, okay that they're going to plan for a lunar orbit. And then that's supposed to be a jumping off point to the Mars missions. But obviously we have to be working on some of those Mars technologies now. So they are ready Mm -hmm. when it's time for that. But from what I've heard, I would say heading to Mars in the 2030s and doing some good extended living and working on the ground in the 2040s. Amazing. Yeah. So it's very cool to think in our lifetime. (laughs) We will, yeah. we will see that, yeah. So it's an interesting perspective, and I'm not sure if you've thought about this historically, but I'm pretty sure I'm a little older than you, but we're not going to get into age. But <laughs> in the 60s, when Kennedy said that we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade and then delivered on that promise, yep. or, well, he didn't, but the, the uh, country did, it was a big bet and an unbelievable accomplishment in such a short period of time. Would Mars be a bigger accomplishment? I think Mars would be a bigger accomplishment in the sense that it's just, it is further. Um, it's hard to really grasp how much more technology would need to be developed to, to do that. Uh, we do have the benefit of everything we've learned so far. So obviously all the Apollo missions were the first of their, their kind to attempt it. So they definitely t- tackled that on the front end and get all the props and respect for that. But, but Mars is difficult. Um, and like I said, I, I focus mainly on just living in the spaceship to get there, the eight months to a year that it takes to, to even get there. That's really where my focus is. But I, I know there are other challenges um, from the fuel, the navigation, even timing of the mission. You can only time it during certain parts of, of the year when the Earth and Mars are near each other. <laughs> so right. there's a lot, of, a lot of logistics that go into it. Are you in a position where you go and do simulation or even you piloting it? No pun intended with an astronaut. <laughs> so we we're currently in our project in ground testing. So that's hooking uh, systems up together on the uh, ground to make sure everything works together. Um, so we're at something called technology readiness level. So TRL five. Um, that's when you start looking at the the system um, in relevant conditions on the ground. Uh, the next step is is TRL six, which I'm sure you can guess, and that's. <laughs> where you would start, <laughs> where you would start testing uh, these systems in relevant conditions, in in something more like flight. For a long time, that has been the um, International Space Station. That's um, something that's definitely still on our radar. That we're we're aiming to hopefully eventually get a, a unit there. You can also do shorter test units on some aircrafts that can simulate space type conditions, such as microgravity. And sometimes that will will be enough to test your unit for, for 
our flight. Awesome. I think they call it the vomit comet or the vomit rocket or something. But either way, they <laughs> they, 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 they simulate the microgravity and everything by going um, up and down very quickly. <laughs> I, I like that phrase better than TRL-7, which I would exactly. assume is the next one. <laughs> it, it is, yes. I mean, I don't mean to brag, but uh, I'm, I'm intuitive in this thing. All right. Well, Amanda, um, I have, as part of this podcast, which, by the way, is going to become the biggest podcast in the world. You, you didn't even <laughs> I'm, know it. You're, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> you, you're going to come down one day as a trivia question, which is, <laughs> who was the featured guest on the first episode of the Future Is podcast? <laughs> but one of the things I'm doing for all of our guests is is asking three questions. Okay. I'm going to throw them at you now. You ready? Yes. Okay. So I, I think based on our conversation, I might know the answer to the first one. But when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, see, this is where um, I think my parents brainwashed me because what kid says chemical engineer? Um, but <laughs> that's really my, my earliest memory was uh, either chemical engineer or math major because math puzzles are really fun. Uh, so I, I liked my dad's a chemical engineer. I like to, to uh, joke with him that I, I did not follow in his footsteps. I did something totally different. I'm a material science engineer. It's, <laughs> it's completely different. You didn't trick me into following you. Um, so yeah, so, so I'll always known math or science. Yeah. That's awesome. Second, number two, what piece of technology could you not live without? Oh, man. I feel like saying our phone nowadays is too obvious. Um, so we'll, we'll put that in the obvious category. And I'll throw out there that I'm a big baby. I love warmth in winter and cool in summer. So I'll, I'll throw out there and say the, the climate control that we have in the, the modern world. I would not want to live back back in the yeah. day when we didn't have that, which I guess I'm realizing now is an appropriate answer for, for Honeywell as well. I did not plan that. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. I like that very much. All right. Good. And that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, phone is likely to be on everybody's mind, but yeah. uh, it's fine. <laughs> and then this one, I think, is an interesting question because it, it, it sort of gets into the type of person we're, we're talking to. How many unread emails are in your inbox right now? I only have six right now. I'm looking at it right no now. No way. I know. I'm one of those that has to have them all read, but my my inbox volume can can get quite large. And to tell you the truth, I was out on leave uh, recently, and I am still digging through that from the past couple of months. So <laughs> okay. I, I like to I like to click through and get them unread, and then I don't panic. Uh, mm -hmm. But I make no promises about actually doing anything about them. All right. Well, so far, and yeah. to be honest, you're the first, but so far you have the record at six. I hope I can maintain it. <laughs> and, and probably those are those are only ones that probably came in while we were speaking. So <laughs> I, I wish I wish you would have asked up front and I could have uh, gone with something even lower and held mm. my title forever. Well, when you come back to do your review on The Martian, we will update the uh, the podcast. Wonderful. All right. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you. thank you for listening, uh, our podcast listening crew, to the first episode of The Future Is. Don't forget to subscribe to go behind the scenes of future technologies. This episode was edited and produced by Cassie Cope.